This is Teeming with Ideas, the podcast that explores how people at work work together. I'm Carlos Valdez Depena, your host, and I spent decades working with teams as well as researching, writing, and speaking about collaboration. Over the years, I've met some brilliant people, academics, business leaders, managers, consultants, who share my passion for collaboration. In Teeming with Ideas, I'll be speaking with these experts who will share their thoughts, experiences, theories, and practices so that you can put them to work to make your work life richer and more rewarding. Enjoy. Professor Lindy Greer, welcome to Teeming with Ideas. How are you feeling today? <laughs> Thank you. I'm excited to be here today. Oh, great. Um, would you take a moment, please, and introduce yourself to our listeners? Just tell them a bit about you, what you do, your background, et cetera, and then we'll, then we'll dig in. Okay. I'm an associate professor at Michigan Ross of Management and Organizations. I study team dynamics and how people get along in teams. I'm also busy with the Center Leadership Center, where I'm faculty director, and we work to provide leadership development to the students at Michigan Ross in our business school. Um, and I'm also busy with the Academy of Management Journal, where I'm associate editor right now. Um, I got here via a very winding route, which I think is typical for many academics. I did my undergrad at Wharton. I was a research assistant and followed the person I worked for over to the Netherlands to a social psychology program to do my PhD with her. And I followed the advisor of my advisor, my academic grandma, if you will, to Stanford eventually after being faculty in the Netherlands for many years. I moved over to Stanford, was there for six years until a year and a half ago when Dean DeRue headhunted me to come run the Leadership Center at Ross, which has been an amazing opportunity. I'm loving being here. In watching your videos, I was impressed with how much of a champion for Michigan you are. The thing that drew me to your work, Lindy, was the topic of power in organizations and in teams and how it plays out. I got an email that was linked to an article of yours and I've read it and thought, I got to talk to this person. I'm really curious to hear your story about how you found your way to this topic. I think, if I'm remembering this correctly, it all comes down to hierarchy in some sense. Can you tell me a little bit about that journey of how you came to this focus on hierarchy and power? Sure. I started my dissertation in 2004, and I wanted to do research on diversity and inclusion back in the day before anybody knew what it was, and I was in the Netherlands. And in one of my studies, I asked people to describe the different types of diversity in their team. And what they came back with, which surprised me at the time when I wanted to study gender or race differences, was most people were more fixated on the power structures in their group than gender or race. And granted, gender and race probably correlate with those power structures, but the universal type of difference in teams that people were most thinking about was the power differences. And at that point in the literature, we didn't know a lot about power in teams. There was a whole lot in psychology about how power can change individuals, that if you have power, you're more creative, you think more abstractly, you're more likely to chase your goals. But all that work was done in laboratory experiments, whereas one person on their own. And no one was trying to understand, okay, within a team, five people in a meeting room, how does power play out there? How does my power get nuanced or changed by the power that someone else has in the room? And so I became very interested in that point into power structures, you know, hierarchy being perhaps the one we talk about most. And so started doing research in hierarchy. I was still living in the Netherlands, junior faculty, and the Netherlands is one of the lowest power distance countries in the world. And I really appreciated how empowering it was. And so my thesis in my 20s was that hierarchy is terrible. It's the root of all evil in companies. And there've been a few pretty famous studies that have come out around that time of social psychology claiming hierarchy is functional. 
Um, and these studies were done at the individual level again, where you show someone a hierarchy and then their brain would work more quickly because there was structure. And then people were taking that finding and then going out to a team of 10 people and saying, hey, hierarchy is good. At least my lived experience was no, that this empowering flatness of the Netherlands is great. The hierarchies I've been in weren't always legitimate. There was a lot of conflict. So I really went out on a limb for a long time of just trying to document all many nefarious ways in which hierarchy is terrible. I did a meta-analysis even at one point and did find across all the literature and not just my own research, the net effect of hierarchy was negative, small but negative. When you say the net effect was slightly negative, how does that effect show up? Is it about productivity? What is it about? Performance, broadly stated across indicators. So if you separated out different indicators of performance, so productivity, creativity, innovation, efficiency, we didn't find differences that across the whole barrage of team performance outcomes, the effect of hierarchy was negative, small but negative. It was significant with 95% certainty it was going to be negative, but not a big effect, meaning that it's highly moderated. The different aspects of the situation of the leadership, et cetera, could potentially change or reverse that effect. And that was on average. So looking at 60 some studies in science and each study has several hundred teams, very highly powered sample. That was the main conclusion is the more hierarchy a team has, the more likely it is to perform worse across a range of outcomes. And then I started having to talk about this finding, especially to students then who wanted to go do something with it and realized saying, don't do hierarchy. Well, what do you do then? <laughs> it wasn't a great alternative. And if you looked into practice at experiments like things like holacracy, you know, they've turned out to not work very well because the guidebook to do holacracy is over 100 pages. And the bureaucracy it takes to make holacracy work is even more rigid and slow than just a good old fashioned hierarchy. And you mentioned in, in your talk that I saw, it was Zappos who implemented holacracy. And, yeah, among others. Among others, okay. Tony Shea was one of the biggest evangelists for it, and he's quietly backed away from it in recent years, which is interesting. And I've seen it in startups in Silicon Valley who are trying to emulate Zappos doing holacracy, and they just got so bogged down in the details of it. You know, and I also went through a lot of companies around this period just trying to look for examples of how are teams finding ways to organize that isn't hierarchy. And at best, you could find small innovations within a team, but certainly not across a whole organization of not having hierarchy. And so then I started to wonder like, okay, well, what then? <laughs> what do you tell our students? And so one of my questions around the time then, especially after being around some teams that are pretty high performing that had hierarchy, was like, okay, well, maybe it's not hierarchy is the problem, it's how we structure it and how we use it. Around this time, I also had an MBA student who was a Navy SEAL. And so I was very curious at this point, I was like, how does, how does a high performing organization do hierarchy? So I asked him how they did hierarchy in the SEALs. And he has a great story that just I found very inspiring, which was if they're on a mission on the ground, very clear hierarchy or chain of command. Commander says, get out now. There's no devil's advocacy or questions asked. You just move. However, when the same team goes back to base to debrief, they literally take their stripes off at the door to the meeting room. And they go sit around a round table. Everybody in the team now has voice. They flatten out. And they all brainstorm and share ideas of what worked and didn't work in the preceding mission. And so, for example, it could be the youngest person on the ground saw a sniper no one else saw. And that's critical information for the team to surface for the next mission. And they're able to do this by symbolically removing the hierarchy and empowering even the most junior people in the hierarchy to speak up. So they brainstorm, share information, go back out the room, put on their stripes, and then fall back into hierarchy. And this is really interesting to me because, well, maybe hierarchy doesn't always have to be 
experienced as hierarchy. And maybe the same team isn't always equally hierarchical. Then maybe it can change how it feels during the day that maybe in some moments, you know, like in the SEALs, we feel a clear chain of command. And in other moments, we feel that it's flat. I did some studies that didn't work trying to see, okay, maybe the optimal team has hierarchy and equality, that you have an organizational structure, but it just never feels that way. And I found that balance, it just didn't work. And so then I started looking at sequences, like what you saw in the SEALs and looking at can a team then maybe not at the same moment, can you have both hierarchy and equality, but can a team fluctuate across a day or a week or a year in terms of how much hierarchy is enacted by the leader versus not? And so we did a study of about six months startups in Silicon Valley to see if startup CEOs would flex the hierarchy the way the Navy SEALs did. And we found that about a third of the time that we would see flexing, that the leaders would, similar to the Navy SEALs, intentionally enact hierarchy or intentionally enact equality, but it was always intentionally done in these companies. Like even within a meeting, there'd be a clear segment of hierarchy where the leader comes forward, makes him or herself big, gives direction, the goal, the vision of the meeting, and then makes themselves smaller, flattens out the hierarchy and says, I hired you all because you're smarter than me. Tell me your opinions. Did you find any confusion among team members about when it was time to go flat? If not, what were the behaviors of the leader that signaled and cued that it's time to go flat? The flexing, like in the meeting, for example, and everything that we saw in the startups that were able to flex effectively, there was clear signaling primarily on behalf of the leader, sometimes by the team, but more often than not, the leader was a conductor and there would be often a ritual in the seals, they removed their stripes. What we saw in several startups was there was artifacts that were brought out. So for example, whenever the post-its came out, people knew it was time for everybody to share ideas. Another company had a basketball that got passed around the room whenever they really wanted people to speak up and whoever held the basketball had the right to speak and everybody had to listen. It was very much enculturated and people knew the signal. Other companies is a little bit more informal than an artifact, but there was a catchphrase by the leader that everybody just knew what it meant, such as I hired you all because you're smarter than me. Everybody immediately started a transition of like, okay, yep, and now's the time I get to speak up. And then when the hierarchy went back, you know, you see signals. It could be a catchphrase like that, but also leaders in their body, whether it was conscious or not, often would visibly show what role they were playing. Were they leading from the front and being big? Were they trying to be small, leave from the back? One leader I saw would even physically go to the back of the room in moments where he was trying to flatten out the team. I also have heard stories of other leaders who even leave the room during those moments to physically remove their presence and then come back in. Sometimes you can see even within a brainstorming session, the team gets into trouble, there's a conflict, or they cannot find a way forward. And then if the leader's in the room, it's interesting then because you can see them from going small to back of the room to like sitting up, lowering their voice, all the cues we have of power and saying, it. And in my experience, this is how I would deal with a situation. But you're like, oh, great. And then now they're moving forward again and the leader would make themselves small again. It seems to me there's a balancing act here between using the hierarchy effectively and switching gears to that flatness and I'm wondering about all the work they did at Google, Amy Edmondson's work on psychological safety. Have you looked at how all of this plays with psychological safety in the team? It can predict psychological safety. You also can argue that psychological safety is a prerequisite for the flat burst to work. So it's definitely interrelated. Psych safety is defined as a willingness to take risks. Right. And then if you look at the behaviors in a team that would predict that, one of which would be knowing that the leader is going to give you a time and a place to share your opinion certainly would be something that would help enhance psych safety in a team. 
That being said, we also saw a few flexing fails, if you will, which were painful and a little bit funny, at least from the outside of where the leader would say, Hey, I hired you because you're smarter than me. What's your opinion? And the team would stare blankly at the leader for five minutes and the leader would be like, okay, great meeting. Let's go on. <laughs> and so clearly in those teams, flexing is also contingent on there being a pre-existing level of safety. And so what we found in our study then is for teams that were able to flex effectively, there's a lot of work done to enable flexing such as building trust between the leader and the team members. In order for a leader to ask that question and empower the team, the leader had to trust the team, which means hiring a team the leader believes is competent. It also means sometimes for the leader, especially micromanaging younger leaders to just have faith <laughs> and to try to trust and to share the power. For the flexes, then we went from flat back to hierarchy, took a strong sense of trust from the team to the leader because no one likes to have their power taken away in that moment. Then we all have voice So wait, now the stripes are going back on. Like that sucks. No one likes that. There's research showing that that type of flex is hard. And so what we found there in teams that were more willing to accept that is they trusted the leader to do the right thing, um, which comes from the leader's competence. It comes from the leader's communication skills, the relationship the leaders built with the team members. Also, interestingly, teams that had a very strong sense of mission were more willing to accept a flex into hierarchy because they understood the purpose of it and why it mattered. So for example, one of the quotes from a qualitative study from a CEO is like, yeah, when I pull up the reins, I explain why. So recently, you know, we're going out for funding. It was a bomb run and everybody knows then, you know, like funding is like life in a startup, heads down, there's a hierarchy. And that was really interesting to me because that really resonated with the Navy SEALs example too, right? Over it's life or death, that's on a line and we know why we're doing it. We accept the hierarchy. And so startups that didn't necessarily have the, the glory for country or whatever of the SEALs, they still were able to inspire people around a mission enough that they were able to accept the hierarchy. What was interesting to me was that the normal state of being in most of these companies that were effectively flexing was hierarchy. About 80% of the time, more or less, they were in hierarchy because during task execution, the hierarchy was there. Right. And so these moments of flatness were really bursts of flatness. It wasn't the team was mostly in flat and then now and then the leader would you know, pull the leader card. Mm -hmm. So more so the team had a hierarchy they accepted, they worked with, they lived with. And every now and then the leader saying, now we need to remove the hierarchy for a moment and like, let's everybody speak up and then, you know, end that and go back into the hierarchy. There was a term you used, emotional unpredictability. It was in your talk on YouTube. Clearly relates to what you're talking about here in terms of making that switch from hierarchy to flat and back again. Can you talk a little bit about that aspect of leader behavior? Yeah, it's been interesting with this flexing work then to start, start to understand the different things we can do in teams to signal power versus signal flatness. And one of the interesting things I think is emotion. Emotions have an amazing ability to either push people away and accentuate power differences or to bring people closer. I just gave a talk this morning for IESC in Barcelona for their research group there on the emotional unpredictability paper. So it's very top of mind right now. And so one of the things we've seen that increases power distance between a leader and the team is when leaders are unpredictable in their emotional display. And so often leaders interact with many different teams. They have many different inputs. They catch a lot of ones. So leaders have a lot of emotions, but if you go to any given follower, they're only privy to what's happening within their team with that leader. And 100% of their life is that leader. That's their boss, that's their day-to-day. -day. Whereas for the leader, that follower is one of many. And so there's this asymmetry where the leader has a lot of emotions that have nothing to do with the follower, but the follower thinks the leader is everything. So the follower thinks the leader's emotions are always about him or her. And so leaders are often perceived as emotionally unpredictable. 
certainly for me, when I was younger, I was in a research group where I was convinced the leader of it was just crazy because I never could understand the emotions. It just felt very hard to predict. And there was a lot of power struggles in that lab. There's a lot of people throwing each other under the bus daily, which is when I started this research. And then the older I've gotten, the more now I have my own teams and I've gotten feedback from my teams over Lindy, we think you're angry at us, what's going on? It's like, oh wait, it's not you. I just got a paper rejected, nothing to do with this team. And so I started to understand that there is often this information asymmetry and that one of the jobs of leaders is to make sure their emotions are conveying the right amount of power they want to show. If you do want to be very powerful, pull up the reins, be hierarchical, or even like dominate another group, if you're unpredictable in your emotions, it keeps people on their toes. However, if you want to be able to have a team that can flatten out and trust you and be safe, giving predictability to your emotions is very helpful. And so providing clarity of if you walk into a meeting to say, you know, hey, I just had a paper rejected. I might be a little bit off. It's not about you all. That actually can really help flatten out a team and also humanize a leader. Those are interesting signals that we're finding for how you can use emotions strategically to flex a hierarchy in either direction. Well, you have to be willing to be vulnerable, open up about your emotions. That we're showing emotions, even if we don't realize it. Uh, you know, if you're irritated about something, even if you, think that you don't show emotions, there's a lot of research showing those in lower power or the followers are fixated on the emotions of those in power because it determines their daily life. So there's like emotional seepage happening. <laughs> and then if you're slightly irritated, they don't know why they think it's about them. Then they get upset and irritated too. And all of a sudden you have a terrible meeting. And as a leader, you don't know why, because you wouldn't think the team was doing a great job and now everybody's upset. And it was actually because you walked in the door with tension from your last meeting. Wow. I have a question about culture. Mm -hmm. So you've worked in the US, you've worked in the Netherlands. Does this 80% of the time hierarchy finding apply across cultures? It's a good question. There isn't enough data in cultures outside of Western cultures to really give a good answer to that. I would expect, of course, it would vary a little bit. Some cultures, say like China, naturally are in hierarchy even more than that, whereas other cultures like the Netherlands really dislike hierarchy and try to avoid it. Right. That being said, the Netherlands is a country of paradoxes. And so while they pride themselves on being the most egalitarian or flat country in the world, it was very hierarchical under the surface, always. For example, everybody should address each other by first names. But when you hire a professor for the department, Usually it was a decision done by whoever the department chair was. No one else had a vote in it, which is even more hierarchical than say in a typical American department where all professors above tenure vote on the new hire, even all the professors. And so even though on the surface, it looked like it was very flat, I wouldn't be surprised if they also fit the 80-20 rule. It's just much more behind the scenes. I worked at Mars Incorporated for a long time, which is a family owned business and very flat. At least that is always their objective. They fluctuate between a little, sometimes too many layers and sometimes maybe too few. But anyway, that egalitarianism is an ethos that pervades that culture. And don't kid yourself for a minute that it isn't extremely hierarchical, especially where it concerns the Mars family who are still actively involved in the business. I think I heard you say this. I, I'm looking at my notes thinking, maybe I made this up. I wrote down hierarchy seems inevitable in human organization. It's literally hardwired into our hormones. From evolution, you know, we've been working as human beings to coordinate our actions. So, you know, if you're hunting for a mammoth back in the day, you needed a hierarchy of someone to say, throw the spears now. Right. So there's been interesting hormonal studies showing that we have a natural preference to sort people to things like in-groups and out-groups, as well as into who's a leader, who's not. The trouble is, though, our evolutionary preference for hierarchy often gravitates towards more dominance-based hierarchies, which are highly ineffective for collaboration, that you need an expertise-based hierarchy for collaboration. And so... Hierarchy is ubiquitous, but then it's a question of how can we make sure 
if we're going to go with it, <laughs> that we design hierarchies that are effective. The flexing work I mentioned looks a lot about how to use hierarchies, but there's also a lot of research coming out too about how do you actually design hierarchies to work. One of the biggest takeaways is basing hierarchies on expertise to the best of your ability so that the leader mm -hmm. knows most over the whole project above anybody. Maybe there's specialists within the team, but at the oversight level, the leader does know most. The expertise-based hierarchy makes a ton of sense. One of the missing pieces often is that ability to read the room, to have some empathy for your people, and to interact with them based on that. What is the role and how does it balance with the need for some kind of emotional acuity? You need both. I mean, you want the leader that knows most, but also the leader that has the social skills to use the hierarchy effectively. And so for me, I prefer social skills over EQ or emotional intelligence. There it is. But when I do leader development, I get irritated by things like strength finders or leadership styles or things like EQ because it applies this very fixed mindset that also is very much tied to inequality and a lack of inclusion over you're born a leader or not, and that there's a certain prototype of what a leader is. And if you're not actually born that way, you should never dare to lead. And that makes me very unhappy. So at least <laughs> based on the data in this area, I very much prefer language that has a growth mindset around leaders. Okay. So that leaders need to have a toolkit of skills, the skills just like math or reading are skills that can be broken down and taught to anybody. It just requires intentional effort, just like you had to do your problem sets for math in school. You need to be doing your leadership behavior experiments as a leader to get better at it every day. And there's many behavioral skills that leaders need. And the more the leader has those tools, the better they are at leading. I have to get to this before we run out of time. And, and it's one of my most cherished pieces of your work, which is the hippo pond analogy. I think the hippo pond has some application for your average day-to-day -day team leader and how they think about how they show up with their team. Yeah, and also how you design your team too, going back how to structure hierarchies well. The way I like to talk about leadership and hierarchy anymore is to imagine that you first off say you're the only person in the team, you're the leader, you're a hippopotamus. What do we know about hippos? They're very large, they're very ferocious, they're very scary, they have a lot of power. Hippos often live in water, they can go above water and be big and scary with the big teeth, or they can go underwater and just see their little eyes floating around in the pond. As you start to bring employees onto your team as a leader, you can imagine them having different islands in your pond where they have ownership. And so we know from research, the best hierarchies have horizontal differentiation where each person in the team has a clear area of ownership they can stand on. As leader, as hippo, you still own the entire pond, including the islands. But when someone's on their own island, they have the most expertise and they also have the autonomy and decision power to make decisions for that area. So maybe within your pond, your startup, you've hired now a CTO. He or she lives on the technology island. They may hire more employees to live on the island where they set up camp on the island too. Everybody has a clear plot of land that is theirs. That level of empowerment and autonomy is very important for effective teams. At the same time, as a hippo, you are allocating land to these different groups and factions. Maybe you start to have a marketing island too. You never forget you are the hippo. It is your pond. You are the leader. However, and this gets into the behavioral manifestation of leadership and hierarchy, you need to be very intentional as a hippo of whether you're always out of the pond snarling at people, which means it's going to be a very hierarchical little area where no one ever speaks up, even though they have their own plot of land, or you're able to intentionally go underwater and let people do the work on their plots of land. And you just have your eyes there. So you're still there. You're still watching. You're there if there's a problem, you know, if marketing and technology get into a fight or if they're not coordinating, you rise up out of the water and your hippo ferociousness and save the day. 
couple of things in this that are really important is one, a lot of leaders are scared to share power, especially early on. They think that if they give power to someone else and they empower someone to make a decision on marketing, it means that you have less power as a leader. And we know from research, power isn't necessarily a zero sum and that actually sharing power with others makes you more powerful. So how do you get someone to have the confidence to do it? And so I really like the metaphor of the hippo then over when you go underwater as a hippo, you are still a hippo. You are still exactly the same ferocious creature with the same amount of power. You're just underwater. And so how can you start to be more aware of your body language, your signals, how you manage meetings in a way that you can intentionally go underwater in those moments where you want to flatten out? And then if the team has a problem, you rise up and you're still a hippo. But the whole way through, you're a hippo. You're just choosing how much of your power you're showing in any given moment. How do you define power? The control of resources. Resources could be a job title, could be expertise, it could be your network, um, it could be others' perception of your status. All these are different types of resources. If you look at the older research in social psychology and power, they talk about the bases of power Yes. on different types of resources. I really admire the work of Jeff Pfeffer at Stanford, who has a great book mm-hmm. on power. And a lot of what he gets into, one of the skills of leadership that you should have in your toolbox is being able to read a power landscape effectively of knowing how much power you have. I think people often both overestimate as well as underestimate their power. And so having an accurate understanding of how much power you actually have in any given situation, as well as those of others and understanding the dynamics that entails for how you should be leading. At least for me, for example, as I came to Michigan Ross and I'm running the leadership center, my power at Michigan is much higher than it was at Stanford. And I was used at Stanford to having to to show power, to be heard, to get people to listen to me. And now if I already have a larger power base here and then I'm a big hippo, I terrify people. (laughs) And so I've having to learn how to unlearn some of my behaviors and spend more time underwater. Showing power or submerging your power is sticky. And so the more that we can get really flexible where moment to moment, you can intentionally change how much power you're showing to match the power landscape you're in is really important. When I had the privilege to be around CEOs there are eons better leaders than I am. It's one of the things I notice a lot is how quickly they shift their power. If you see them for, in a room full of people, like person to person, you can see them going higher in the water, out of the water or lower, person to person, moment to moment. And I'm not that quick. It's still a skill that I'm trying to polish. I'm reading the power landscape and matching the power I should be showing to what's happening in that moment. Imagine you're talking to a fairly junior leader, someone who's been leading teams for maybe a year or two. Is there one piece of advice you might offer to someone in this area of power and the hippo pond to help them perhaps accelerate their development as a leader of a team? Get regular feedback from those around you. There is a research article that just came out that said that leaders who ask for negative feedback perform better over time. Because at least for me, it took me a year at Michigan before I realized how many people I scared. (laughs) (laughs) You know, I I should have been asking for that feedback earlier. You know, especially for young leaders, that feedback is critical in that growth mindset over how can you, each meeting you walk into, be intentional about a behavior that you want to work on, as well as being intentional about what you need to do for that specific team in that moment. And each week have a new behavior. Like the summer for me, I worked a lot of my inclusive behaviors over, can I ask more questions and give statements in meetings? Can I speak more slowly? Can I speak less? And each week I would have a different behavior with an inclusion I would work on. And then I would ask my team after what worked, what didn't. Sometimes stuff didn't work. For me, asking questions to me as a scientist meant saying why. And I hadn't realized that why sometimes can be a little bit of a hostile question. 
And so then getting the feedback of the next week, okay, rather than saying why, saying, could you please explain your reasoning to me? Right, right. And so as a leader, you know, especially as a young leader, you know, you can have an executive coach which accelerates development more than most things. But if you don't have the luxury of having an executive coach, I do believe that we can coach ourselves leadership. So for example, on our website, saner.umich.edu, we have a framework for how to coach yourself leadership of five steps. And I think the more leaders get on that type of development journey where they choose categories of behaviors to work on each week, try new behavior and then get the feedback and then update. That's the quickest way to get better at leadership. And if you go to our philosophy tab to journey, we have a whole five-step framework with videos and workbooks over how to teach yourself leadership. One of the things I'm very geekily excited about might be the coolest thing I've ever done. And I'm a geek, so bear with me, but we made the world's first searchable encyclopedia of data-driven leader behaviors. So we now have a search engine where you can say, I want to be more inclusive. And it pulls up everything we know from science on specific behaviors that allow you to be more inclusive. And so we'll give you a behavior you could work on for each week and say, maybe there's 10 behaviors that come up right now for inclusion. And so our encyclopedia can allow you to choose that. And if you follow our social media, every Tuesday, we do a tip Tuesday where we bring out one of those tips from the encyclopedia and give people a specific behavior they could be working on for the week. That is awesome. I love that. Lindy Greer, thank you so, so much. This has been fascinating. And I'm just looking forward to getting this thing published and out there so everybody can hear this. Um, um, to my listeners, it's Lindy Greer, who's at the University of Michigan. It's the... The Stephen Ross School of Business and then the Center Leadership Center at Ross. Check it out. And uh, I look forward to having you all with me on the next Teaming with Ideas. Take care. Hi, I'm Janet Aldrich, producer and director of Teaming with Ideas. Thanks for listening. And thank you, John Wallerick, for the music. If you found this podcast useful, please subscribe, review, and share. Want more? Visit Carlos's blog, Teaming with Ideas, at carlosvdapena.com. Questions? Click on the Contact Carlos button, and we'll answer promptly. To be interviewed on the Teaming with Ideas podcast, visit carlosvdapena.com forward slash podcast dash contact and complete the questionnaire. Thanks again for listening and keep on teeming with ideas.